0: We all need food to survive, but the way we produce and consume today is not sustainable nor healthy.
1: We looked to science to find the answer, but got surprised. There was no clear answer on what a healthy diet from a sustainable food production really looked like.
0: This is why EAT gathered 37 of the world's best scientists to get a definitive answer on what a healthy and sustainable diet looks like for
1: all. Their joint result is the Eat Lancet Commission, not just a scientific report. It is a blueprint for a better and more sustainable future.
0: It will have fundamental implications for how we produce, distribute, consume and waste food. Nothing will ever be the same again.
1: The good news is that it's possible to feed healthy and sustainable food to a growing population.
0: But to get there, you could argue that we'll have to question everything we know about food and learn how to eat again.
1: I'm Dr. Hazel Wallace from The Food Medic.
0: And I'm Dr. Sandro DeMeo, CEO of EAT.
1: From the studio in London, we aim to translate the EAT Lancet findings into everyday actions to you, our global audience.
0: This is the Let's Rethink Food podcast, a collaboration between EAT and The Food Medic.
1: Hi guys, it's Hazel and Sandro. Welcome to the latest episode of the Eat Lancet podcast.
0: So the world has to shift to healthy and sustainable diets, the science says. But how? This episode explores who should be the main drivers of change, politicians or the voters, businesses or consumers.
1: So we are delighted to have Dan Parker here from Living Loud and what an incredible story has been telling over the past couple of years. Dan, for those who are listening who don't know who you are, can you tell us about your story?
2: So for about 25 years, I worked in the advertising and marketing of junk food. I've had an agency with companies such as McDonald's and Coca-Cola and, and Asda and many others as my clients. And then in a moment of perhaps divine justice, I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes about four or five years ago. And what I did is as I learned about my condition and how to manage my condition, I kind of stepped out of my Soho bubble and learned about the scale of the obesity crisis and issues around diabetes and other diseases and realized that was part of the problem. So I closed down my agency and decided I would try and dedicate my time to being part of the solution. Oh, wow. I started volunteering for Jamie Oliver and working on a project for him called Sugar Smart. Mm. And now I, I work to not only reform junk food marketing to make it more responsible and make a healthier system, but also to say, well, actually, how can we use advertising and marketing to inspire people to make some healthier choices and live happier lives?
1: And can you give us some of the examples that you've taken from your experience in advertisement and, and I guess, used it for the greater good?
2: Well, the interesting thing is when you step out of your bubble, and, and people in advertising do live in a bubble. They don't experience poor people or sick people or old people or young people or any people other than other people who work in advertising. And when you step out of it, you look at it and realize actually it is very, very sophisticated emotional Mm. manipulation. You know, I have helped write psychological profiles of different kind of demographics in society and identify where people's most sensitive emotional buttons are and then figure out how you use media to press those buttons in order to encourage people to eat more and more and more of the things that you would like them to eat. And you begin to realize something that's very, very important, which is that I always say that obesity is a physical manifestation of an emotional condition. And then actually the food that we eat is mostly driven not by knowledge or, or rational decision-making. It's driven by emotions and the heat of day-to-day existence. And when we realize that actually we're operating on an emotional plane, it starts to change how public health should work. We realize that we need to talk more to people's hearts. We need to inspire them. So I lead a project called Veg Power which is about using marketing and advertising to inspire kids to love veg, because most kids don't. Mm. And we're not going to solve that problem until we get the kids engaged with the food itself.
0: But let's take a step back a second, because we often think about advertising as the billboard in High Street, but it's way more sophisticated than that, and particularly in the digital age. Can you explain for us exactly, give us an insight into how sophisticated digital advertising in particular has become?
2: Yeah, it's interesting because there is a mass movement of money from more traditional advertising routes into digital, but actually a lot of it doesn't look like advertising. It's not a sort of space on a screen that's occupied by a brand. It's much subtler. It's about creating content that permeates into people's lives that they share with their friends. It's about getting established influencers to place your products. And the the best paid YouTuber in the world is a guy called Dan TDM, who's actually from Aldershot. He makes more money and reaches a bigger audience than the ten best paid presenters on the BBC, wow. Wow. and he's completely unregulated. He can pretty much do whatever he wants, and he will—you know—he'll get paid by a Coca-Cola to endorse their product, and and that's what marketing looks like. And it's kind of hidden; it's much harder to identify and much subtler.
1: And I guess it's changing now with the role of influencers online, and you have people who are advertising and they're bloggers, and like you said, it's not regulated, and what they put out there, people are consuming. So like you said, Sandra, we have to look at other ways that people are marketing and advertising things. and how can we use that, and I guess use it for the good and not just look at it as a bad thing, maybe.
0: But also they know, I mean advertisers know a lot more about the person that they're reaching these days, right? it's It's not that sort of blanket approach of a billboard in High Street that maybe someone will walk past that's the right consumer. But they're able to actually tailor the advertising to a much higher level of specificity for that consumer and even bundle certain types of consumers in the digital space and sell those off to the highest bidder selling the product that wants to reach that consumer most. Give us a sense of the sophistication of advertising and how it works in Today's world.
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a sense, you, you you might recall an amusing moment when the Senate committee interviewed Mark Zuckerberg and they said to him, Well, how many how many data points do you have? And he sort of looked at them like they were speaking another language because they don't really understand how it works. So giving a simple idea of the sophistication is the way that big data and artificial intelligence works these days is it's not about knowing a particular thing about you. It's knowing about the kind of things you're interested in. So if it knows that you like, for example, soul music and Hawaii, it will look for other people who like soul music and Hawaii, and it will conclude that you probably like the same things that they do, which is invariably right. Now, if you sit there and say, well, actually, I've got a 1,000 data points on you. Everything you think you post into that social media channel is a statement of interest Mm. in the things that you like. If I have a 1,000 statements of interest from you, and then I have that data on a couple of billion people, it means that a big social media network can calculate the very, very high probability of being right your views and interests on every single subject that you can possibly think of. So the targeting is incredibly, incredibly precise and sophisticated way of of picking people out. You can then change the message. You know, we've moved from broadcast to narrowcast. So every single advert is dynamically created on the fly to suit the individual. So if folks want to Google to look for a, a video from Kellogg's, it explains how they used a whole range of different pieces of advertising creative to personalize it based on the interests of people and that's kind of the direction it's moving on so it really speaks to you as an individual there's an organization called the food foundation that's dedicated towards trying to improve the food systems and trying to get the world to eat more vegetables in particular and a year or so ago working with them we realized that there's just no advertising for vegetables it's about 1.2 percent of all advertising for food is for vegetables wow yeah that's like (laughs) nothing right it's a few frozen peas right so we, we put together a little fun competition which was supported by the chef Euphony Whittingstall and an advertising legend called Sir John Hegarty and we invited people to enter an ad and we kind of had some fun with it and it was great, it we went out on social and it was nice. Then we sat down and had a serious conversation and said, you know what, there's a bigger problem here. Could we create a marketing organisation for vegetables, a champion for vegetables because let's face it, we all know that farmers aren't very good at that kind of thing and they don't have any money. Right? Mm. And then it snowballed. Suddenly we got support from, from Jamie Oliver and the NFU and lots of different organizations came on board and we, we raised some money so we could exist. And, and then we got contacted by ITV who had offered us this £2 million worth of free advertising. Oh, wow. We then approached the agency who made the John Lewis ad campaign who offered to make us an ad for free. And then just more and more and more things. So I think we probably have a campaign that's maybe worth commercially possibly £4 million that's going live on the 25th of January, which is going to talk very, very directly to kids. You know, We've identified that the, the key issue here, particularly in low-income families, is that kids actually really don't like vegetables. Let's be honest about it. And actually parents are concerned that the vegetables will end up in the bin. Mm. And they're very, very concerned about food waste, particularly if they're on low incomes. We have to break that cycle. And to break that cycle, we have to get the kids engaging with veggies.
1: Mm.
2: And if they do that, the parents feel confident we then have to support the parents in terms of perhaps making it a little bit easier on the purse and maybe helping them a little bit to make sure when they serve the veggies, they actually taste good. Yeah. Right. But unless we get the kids engaged, we fail. Mm. And that is extraordinarily hard. Because, you know, how many times in, in movies and cartoons have you seen the kind of broccoli moment? Mm. Right? We're pushing against that. Now, my nine-year-old decides he doesn't like something before it goes into his mouth.
1: That yeah. means
2: it's nothing to do with the food. And that's the issue we have to address.
1: Yeah. Shifting diets is a nice segue into introducing our next guest, Professor Tim Lang at London Cities University and one of the Eat Lancet commissioners. Now, you've done groundbreaking work and global work on diets, obesity and poverty, and also have worked in shaping food policies worldwide. What has to change in order for us to shift to healthy, more sustainable diets?
3: Well, what we've heard from Dan there is a very eloquent and brilliant account of the problems we have in a rich country like Britain. If we go to Malawi or to Southeast Asia or bits of Latin America, that analysis doesn't quite fit. Something not dissimilar is happening with the the more affluent consumer end, but it's not the picture Totally. And when on the Lancet Commission we were reviewing, well, what do we do about this enormous problem that the Commission has outlined, which is the world's not eating healthily and it's eating. In a way which is destroying ecosystems, major driver of climate change, major land use despoiler, destroyer of this, that, and t'other. You know, you can get quite depressed actually. Mm. Although I'm not. Well, what would we do about it? Well, the conclusion. After two years of going through all the options and looking at the different levels that actions will have to happen, looking at the range of actors, just listen to Dan's story, the number of different actors in the policy scene he was referring to that he has to take account of, they have to take account of. Now look at that worldwide. There's no one solution to this. Mm. And so what we do in the commission report is try to lay out a number of core strategic directions, whether you're in Malawi or Southeast Asia or Latin America or rich Britain or rich United States, um, are applicable. Mm. Simply, the proposal that we make is saying, look, the key thing is to get actors somewhere in the food system, whether it's consumers in one country or farming organizations in another or public health and doctors in another. Uh, you have to start building a movement which is going to take this agenda seriously because the core idea of the Eat Lancet Commission report is that there has to be what we've called a great food transformation. The world cannot carry on eating in the trends that it's doing, not just for the reasons that Dan has said, but also for ecosystems reasons. And that requires a sort of a multi-analysis, multi-actor, multi-level, multi-sector, multi-perspective. And it'll be different in Malawi or Thailand than it will be in Britain. Mm. But that process has to start because the clock is not just ticking, it's almost stopped actually on some aspects of the food system. So it's a very sober analysis that we give, but also a very hopeful analysis that we give. We say, look, we can do things. And there's a chart in the report which says, look, if you think this is too big, you know, okay, we can talk about it, but let's quietly go away and commit suicide or wait for a crisis. No need. Come on. There's a history of public health dealing with things like this. Tobacco, infection, droughts, difficulties, mass hunger in the 1930s. There are moments when big changes have actually been possible to do, which have actually addressed a crisis and used that crisis and been opportunistic about the crisis, actually. And I think there's a subtext in what we've argued in the commission report, which is both incredibly optimistic as well as opportunistic, but also is suggesting that you're not going to do this on your own. There's no single answer to this problem. It's a systemic problem. So it will need multiple interventions, multiple actions.
0: Tim, you led a section focusing specifically on what we call policy, which is sort of actions by government. It's a scary word to many of us, but it really just means, you know, doing something, doing something what practically is happening around the world? There are so many examples of governments stepping up, taking action in the food space that are having enormous flow on effects for the health of populations and the planet. Can you give us a couple of your favourite examples?
3: Well, actually, here's Dan giving actually a really big and important example. As you know, Sandro, having worked, you know, the WHO and NCDs, non-communicable diseases, we have a Runaway non-communicable diseases problems. We've so that's got diabetes, diabetes, disease, diabetes cancer, obesity. Yeah, obesity. These are really wake-up calls in poor countries and rich countries mm. alike. Actually, mm. very poor countries, low-income countries, cannot afford to deal with the obesity problems that they're getting. It's much less than, say, America or Britain or Australia, the rich countries. But nonetheless, it's penalizing mm. for their economies. That's one. I think the very fact that politicians who 10 years ago were not interested, they mm. said health is about healthcare, it's about throwing drugs at it or possibly surgery at it, they're now realizing actually something's got to change in the food supply chain. Mm. that it can't just be about free choice and this fantasy that consumers will be rational. As Dan was rightly saying, as you know, Sandra, I'm a psychologist gone wrong. I understand that food is not just about nutrients. It's not just about money. It's about meanings and culture yeah. and, and and social relations. All of that complexity that Dan was rightly getting at on the Lancet report, we're saying, look, because the new media are reshaping culture, Uh, just to say, oh, well, governments should do something or pass a regulation, it's probably not going to have any effect at all, actually. If you've got runaway cultural agents like uh, um, the the social media, Mm. you're going to have to address that differently. Mm. But historically, we know that we can deal with those Mm. things. But it's about political will. Mm. That's why we've got this section on policy, and there's a great... Wodge of very dry stuff, and it's also saying it's Lancet Commission, but it's also saying to doctors here, you two are, uh, are proper medical doctors. Well, actually, I'm the proper one for the PhD, <laughs> but you've got one as well. It's saying doctors, you're actually very important as as change agents. Mm. Yeah, Dan and I were talking before coming in for this recording about you know who are the one to one changers, and actually doctors are very important because they see people at a moment of crisis, mm. and we know women have a Baby or men have a baby, they'll think very seriously about their child. They want to nurture it. So they'll think about food at a time that elsewhere in their lives they don't. Or if they had a heart attack, they take it very seriously. But what we've got to do and what the commission's report is very clear is this isn't just an individualized problem. No. It's mm. a systemic problem. This is a worldwide problem taking different forms in different places. Mm.
1: And Dan, how can voters inspire politicians and big companies to take action?
2: I think voters is the wrong word. I don't think anybody's going to change how they vote in an election on the issues that we're discussing today. Maybe they should, but they won't. Right. There are two words that I think are important. One is as consumers, obviously, your pound is your most powerful vote,
1: mm.
2: right? Uh, and how two people choose to spend their money? And unfortunately... The reality is that the vast majority of the population are not engaged on the issues that we're talking about. Price is the number one driver of food choice. Mm. The second issue is about voice, is that social media, despite its many ills, is also incredibly powerful. We live in a very strange and hard to understand political environment at the moment, but voice is very powerful. If you get 200,000 angry people on social media, you can change the law. That's just the way it is. And actually, if you had a choice between a really well thought out evidence-based report or 200,000 people on social media who are angry, I would take the second if I wanted to change the world. Right? And so we can use that and we need to use that. And people, you know, in, interesting, there's, there's UK has government consultation on various issues to do with junk food marketing reform at the moment. And, and the consultations have been overwhelmed by the volume of response. And the volume of response are... Just regular folk, concerned parents and nutritionists and people who work in public health and they're getting online and they're, they're taking 10 minutes out to say what they think about energy drink sales to sixty under-16s or calorie labelling on food. And the overwhelming tide of opinion for the banning of junk food advertising on the London Underground, I believe mm-hmm. the public response was that 82% of people were in favour.
1: Mm. great
2: this is voice this is power this is modern day voting right and so mobilizing people is immensely important for those
3: of us who want to bring about change i'm on the london food board that's done that band so i've helped nurture that and i'm very proud of it but dan is absolutely right you know you can take these things out to the people and treat them sensibly and appeal to them as a parent or as someone responsible and they will act in a way that's apparently politicians say they don't want to do. Mm. The politicians don't lead. That's one of the points. We don't say this in our report, but it's something I think all of us agree. Politicians have got to be made to lead. Mm. They've got to be encouraged and led into leading, as opposed to wanting to actually take action on this. They are worried about the diet-related ill health. They're beginning to get worried about climate change, but they're not putting them together. I mean, we just had the climate change, the COP24 in Poland, just note, food was not on that agenda at all. It was all about coal and energy burning and car use. Actually, food is right up there as a driver of climate Mm, change. We've got to unleash much more imagination is, I think, one of the actually really nice things we say in this report. It's a dry report. It's very boring in Dan's terms. (laughs) There's not much emotion in it. But it's actually appealing to saying we've got to do much more creative things if we want to have the great food transformation.
2: I Mm. I think there's a chain of events, isn't it, that says you have to have a good scientific base. You Mm. do. And have some research. And then when you have that research, you need to hand it over to people who do communication, Mm. who know how to make noise, who know how to appeal to the public and with public support and make a great video. And you use that to create a storm in the media and on social media, and that's how you pressure the politicians. Say, here's the report, and by the way, here's the front page of the Daily Mail, (laughs) right? And then they will go, right, this is just a win all round, and they will try and make change. And then, of course, they get a call from industry and everything gets ditched. But, you know, if we create enough noise in social media and enough good scientific evidence, we can... Winning in places.
3: A good example of that, uh, David Attenborough, nearest to probably a secular saint we have in, in British culture, ended a very powerful series yeah. of wildlife TV programmes on plastics. Now, Of all things the eco-worriers worry about, plastics is high up, but it's not been. Climate change is their number one. And yet, with five minutes at the end of a six or seven-part series, this has become world news and has altered so much of thinking. Now, if we look at that in hard terms, if you really wanted a food system without plastics, you have to change the food system. Just cutting out plastic bags or plastic straws ain't going to do it. So I'm using that as an example from some an, a different area apparently. But actually, what's the relevance of that to what the Lancet Commission is talking about, which is about diet and health and ecosystems? Well, ultra-processed foods are held together by plastic. Mm. You cannot buy A processed food without it being wrapped in plastic was very hard. Mm -hmm. So, that sort of transformation can actually get motivations from different sources than the conventional public health world thinks as important. That's why one of the subtexts, you know this, Sandra, um, of the report is what I call, and the centre I work at uh, up the road at City University of London, we call ecological public health, about putting ecosystems' health back to back with human public health. And so that plastics example is an example of an opportunity for mm. health thinkers to latch on to a concern that really captured social media in the sense Dan's been talking about and link it to that bigger picture to capture public imagination Saying, do you know, we actually do need to eat less processed foods. Let me have coffee in a real cup, not in a throwaway cup. Yeah. You start transforming... Everyday assumptions about mm. food and culture. I'm a social scientist. I think this is a battle for minds, not just mouths mm. and markets. It's the three M's.
0: Minds, not just mouths and markets. I love it. Dan, you talked about the y- using the, the forces of advertising for good and for veg in particular. But how much is it about also reining in the dark side of marketing and advertising the billions of dollars being spent on foods that we know probably don't have a central place in the future of our diets
2: i would suggest to people they step back and ask themselves a moral question which is say do we think it is okay for big corporations to use advertising to influence our children to eat things we know to be unhealthy for our children Mm. Right, and if we're okay with that society then that's fine, let's just go with that but I think generally most people would say I'm not comfortable with that, that's not the world I want to live in mm. so for me we start to say actually we just should not be able to advertise unhealthy food to children full stop, in any more than you can advertise cigarettes to children
0: right? and there are parts of the world where that's totally accepted
2: right, and there's there's a movement in that mm. direction all around the world Right, mm. so, albeit slowly because there's a lot of resistance the second thing for me is about some honesty. Now, if I sat here with you with a cereal packet or or a food advert, I could show you multiple ways in which that cereal packet is misleading you to think that the thing is healthier than it is or that your portion size should be different than it actually will be and and many other ways that it is trying to deceive you. My my view is nutrient labelling in itself is is a beautiful piece of deception. It's so fantastically confusing compared to, say, energy efficiency labelling, which we all don't understand, but we know how to use it, right? Where nutrient profiling is none of us really know how to use it, right? So let's just make it honest. Let's make it so that anybody, regardless of their level of food literacy regardless of whether they have good command of the language, the, the native in their country, or regardless, in my case, if they remember to take their glasses with them when they go to the supermarket, can actually make a reasonably informed choice as to the food they want to eat. And if they then say, okay, I'm going to buy a treat, good luck to them, but at least they know they're doing it. I think let's get there first. Let's make advertising honest and take kids out of the equation
0: and see where that takes us would be my advice on that. And it seems like such an... No brainer. Why? Why are we not moving faster in that direction? Uh, how much is the food industry worth again? <laughs> right. I mean, you know, the, the the influence, and then you you ripple it through to
2: say, well, not only is this got huge impact for you know the majority of the commercial food industry sells highly refined carbohydrate products in a package with a logo, beautifully marketed at a very, very high margin. Nobody's mm. making any money out of vegetables.
0: Right? Mm, which are cheap to produce, really delicious, and as right. you say, have a high margin. Right. And so it's a
2: very, very, very lucrative industry. You know, mm. The food industry is bigger than, than guns and tobacco and oil combined. Wow. That's the scale of the challenge you're facing. Then linked to that is the media industry, which of course is incredibly powerful, is somewhat dependent on advertising from the food industry in order to pay its bills. And so an awful lot of the media industry are very, very supportive of of making the status quo. So you come up against some very, very powerful lobbies. Mm. And that's what you that's what you have to fight against. But I think most parents and most families would agree with the basic premises of of let's protect kids and let's make this honest. And I think we can win the day. It will just be hard work.
3: I, th- I agree with that. I've... I think, run two, if not three, children's oriented campaigns. And it's you'll get change in the name of children that you don't on other fronts. The only caveat I will add is that the data say that we've got to have the great food transformation very fast indeed. If we're working at children, I'm actually now increasingly more interested in the parents than in the children, but the children as a way of getting to the parents, because the climate change. Constraints have to happen within 12 years. The great food transformation requires change very fast indeed, actually, um, in order to meet targets of 2050. So this is about population epidemiology, really. We've got to shift whole populations, Mm. uh, not just segments of populations. So children are very important, and people will do things in the name of their children, obviously and rightly. But we're talking about a bigger web of relations than just mm. children and parents. We're talking about class differences, social class differences, socioeconomic differences, intra- and inter-national differences. And that's, and again, I'm, I'm with Dan on this, absolutely. The food industry is very powerful. And by that, we mean the food manufacturing, food processing, food retailing, and increasingly the hospitality industries. Mm. But there are really interesting possibilities in, in all three of those sectors. yeah, um, I'm probably more troubled, and I, I declare I'm an ex-farmer, I'm more troubled actually by farming. I think the, the off-land economic sectors in food are beatable. We can win them over and constrain others. Farming, however, is in a really problematic position. About two-thirds to three-quarters of All the food grown on the planet is grown out of markets, actually, very hand-to-mouth, very small scale. What we're talking about in an urbanized world is where relatively small numbers of farmers, about half a billion, Mm. are feeding well over half of the population population. Increasingly, foods which are then processed and value is added in the way that Dan is referring to. That's about the nature of capitalism, actually. Mm. And it's, I think, one of the elements, subtexts of the Lancet Commission is about civilizing late 20th century food capitalism, actually. Mm. That doesn't sound too grand. It really is about that. It's about profit messages. It's about who can make the money out of it. I mean, your point, Sandra, farming does not make money out Mm. of vegetables. You can make money out of vegetables, but relatively, all the value is added elsewhere. Mm. I'll give you the figures of Britain. In Britain, Mm. British farming's gross value added is less than 5% hospitality is nearly 30%. It's huge amounts of money are made by food, by everyone except the people who actually make it, by growing it or fishing it. Right, but That's it, an extraordinary economic situation.
2: But you have to change. The purse is all-powerful. We do. right? Every part of the food system is determined by the consumer's purse. You yeah. Know? yeah. Among other things. Among other things. If we can look at, for example, you know where small things can ripple through to a big change, is look at the impact of the 5p tax on plastic bags. So that's five pence in the UK. In the UK, UK, right. Uh, It changed rapidly. And what's interesting is that it's not about the money. Is that actually if you take a plastic bag, you are basically holding up a sign saying, I am destroying the planet. You know, I am a bad person, right? I think it's heading that way with plastic straws. I think the, there's just been a campa- an ad campaign over here by Iceland Supermarket about uh, palm oil and orangutans, which got banned, and as a result <laughs> became huge on on the internet. Mm. But I think that's going to change the conversation around palm oil. And actually, when we get to the point that says, if you are not sourcing your palm oil-based products responsibly, you are killing orangutans. It's, it is just that simple. And actually, if all of us change our direction, then the orangutans don't need to die. And I think we are getting some movement on that. We have so far to go, but we have to try and give people that kind of a lens. And that will affect, you know, if you're middle class, you then got a choice. If you're poor, you don't, right? Because you just need to buy the cheapest.
1: Yeah. And Dan, can I ask, why do you think people are so responsive when it comes to plastic and reducing plastic consumption with carry bags and bringing keep cups and things like that and now palm oil? But when it comes to food, it's so difficult to change. Do you think it just comes down to money again?
2: It's because they're... but people who work in public health don't know how to talk to the public. So they'll sit there and say, change your diet because it's good for your health or you won't get diabetes or, or something else where they really need to... Um, I'll give you an example of a campaign I really like. It's a campaign in Australia called uh, Hello Sunday Morning. Hmm. Do you know Hello Sunday Morning? right? What Hello okay. Sunday Morning does is if we want to get people to stop them from drinking so much on a Saturday night... We won't do the usual, which is, you know, the dead body on the side of the road, the child stood by the graveyard, all the usual images that you, people use. What it does is says, look at all the amazing mm. things you can do on a Sunday morning if you don't get drunk on a Saturday night.
0: And it's people keeping out, you back ca- your Sunday.
2: Right. People yeah. go out kayaking and hanging out with the kids and having a great it's time. Right? Because what it gives us is inspiration and hope. It doesn't mm. preach to us. It doesn't talk about worthiness or long-term benefit. It talks about benefit today, hope, inspiration. It fills our hearts with a joy. And we need to look at more of that. Public health needs to change the way it communicates. For me, that is the big failure in all of this. Yeah. It needs to realise it needs to inspire people. But
3: actually, that's taking public health back to its roots, which is thinking long-term, not short-term. I agree with you. Public health has always been about changing the conditions within which people live. That is actually what public health is about. Changing the conditions is about incentivizing the nice things and restricting or downplaying the nasty things. So I think what this Eat Lancet Commission report is doing is about reinvigorating public health, actually.
0: All right. So the People's Democratic Republic of Lang has been declared. <laughs> You're now the, the, the president of the largest country in the world. <laughs> what are the five policies that you would implement that you think uh, would have the greatest impact on transforming our food systems?
3: Well, the first thing... I think it's really important to have – actually, I'm a policy wonk, so I Mm. say this sort of thing. You've got to have an advisory system which tries to get a grip of what is going on in your country Mm. and recognising the international. So I would have a food council. Mm. You've got to... When we look at countries like the Nordic countries, which started going down this route 50 years ago, wow, did it make a difference. Mm. I notice in the Netherlands a process emerging a bit like that. They haven't quite got there yet, but it's emerging. So in the People's Republic of Lang, that would definitely be an issue. I would want to have a a representative sort of food parliament, a food council, a food institute, I don't mind what you call it, but something that takes the temperature of the food system and says, it's too hot here, it's too cold here, we need to do something about it. Second is, I think we do need legislation. You've got to have legislation which enables you, the decision makers, to take power, to do things. So there has to be some courage to that. So that's my third, which is building up informed policy advocates who will really go out there. And, you know, we, you Dan referred to Tesco the other day. A lot of work's gone into educating Dave mm. Lewis, let me tell you. <laughs> that didn't just happen overnight. Mm. And you've got to do things like that, very practical things, where good people can make a difference. One of my heroes in this work is uh, uh, Graham McGregor, a leading leading blood pressure specialist who 20 years ago said we have to reduce salt in the British diet and lobbied, negotiated, beat doors down, charmed through evidence, did everything around salt and got targets set. Mm. And then ever since has been measuring how good or bad British performance is and they get better in some governments and terrible in other governments. And there's Graham giving them hell. Mm -hmm. It's terrific. You've got to have people like that as well, Sandra, people who call it as it is. And Dan, what about for the
0: consumer at home? This can feel very disempowering, very daunting. What can we start to do as consumers to support the shifts we know we need to see in those companies, in those parts of the private sector that we've been discussing today?
2: Well, I would say the most important thing, actually, at the moment is for people to get on social media and get behind. There's a lot of campaigning going on in countries throughout the world. The UK's pretty advanced. We've got a consultation going on around some reforms. Get online, get behind those things, give support to them, give voice to the leaders who are out there pushing for change in the areas that you care about, because it really, really does make a difference.
3: Can that be done globally? I think it can,
2: but it might be done... You know, in a country at a t- time globally, but it, it'll it'll domino effect. I agree. Right? If one country makes a difference, you know, if you if you look, for example, the outstanding results that people have been achieving with childhood obesity in Amsterdam, is the whole world's coming to Amsterdam to find out what they're doing. Uh, and I would hope that my country, the United Kingdom, can can do that with some of the work that we're doing at the moment. The second thing is, I think, is I, I'm going to use the term mindfulness. Is that in the journey that I've been on which is in terms of changing my perceptions around myself and food and diet and what have you and bringing my diabetes under control there's something that sounds incredibly obvious which is that your your body is the vehicle in which you travel for life and it's the only one you're going to get and realistically nobody else cares about it other than you and nothing will more materially affect your happiness today and tomorrow than the condition of that body and i've seen my wife who I've been with for 23 years only knows my dad as a grumpy old man mm. right because that's all she ever saw was this suffering pain slow horrible death right and if we all want to be happy whether it's hello Sunday morning and feeling good I mean I, I you know I, I've lost a fair bit of weight and I've changed my diet my tablets under control I feel incredible I'm coming up to my 50th birthday I haven't felt this good mm. for years right we have to package that message that says actually your happiness is Above all else is defined by your health. And your health above all else is defined by what you put in your mouth. And if we can get that message out to people, then everything else will be fixed.
1: I think that's a good note to wrap up the podcast on. Um, But thank you both, Tim and Dan, for joining us here in the studio today. I think you've left us with a lot of food for thought.